It takes a village to raise a child. We all know that, right? But what happens if you can't find your village? Because raising your child is really, really tough. What if you are so filled with shame and doubt and guilt and fear of judgment that you don't share your triumphs and your struggles? You don't talk about it because you don't think anyone can possibly relate. Well, I've been there, and it was really hard for me to find my tribe. So I decided to make mine. I went out and found these amazing mothers who are also in the trenches, struggling to raise their kids. Together, we are a community. And in this podcast on the hard days, you'll find motivating stories from other real moms who get it. We're going to accept who we are and how we show up for our children each and every day, even on the hard days. All right, so welcome back. I am here with my second guest on the podcast, and I am so, so pumped. This is Kelsey Brown. She is going to tell you all about her journey and story as a speech and language pathologist and also her connection with sensory play. And I can tell you that my children absolutely love sensory play. And they started when they were toddlers. We did sensory bins, especially my son, who really seems to thrive off of different materials and using them depending on his mood, like if he's upset or stressed or angry. So I was super happy to get Kelsey here on the show. So I want to welcome you, Kelsey. Thank you so much for, for joining me today. Yes. Thank you, Megan, for having me. I'm so excited to be here. So as you said, I'm a speech language pathologist and I am a mom of three. I started several years back, a couple years after graduating, I started a home health business with pediatrics. And in that business is actually, or, you know, with the pediatrics is when I started using sensory bins and I really was using it more for positive reinforcement. It was just putting, um, and at the time, honestly, I didn't even like really realize it was quote unquote sensory bins. I just was bringing with materials that were fun to hide our target targets in. And then it was just positive reinforcement. They really loved it. And I, it was so fun to play with them. Cut to a few years later when I have my first child who is now four and a half. He is a highly sensitive child. He has no other formal diagnoses and, you know, self-diagnosed by me as a highly sensitive child. And I just started using sensory bins with him and see immediately saw how much it helped him. So I started showing up on social media to share about our experience, to share about our sensory play ideas. And I just started finding that there were so many other moms that really didn't have a lot of information about highly sensitive children and they were thriving on the information I was providing. So I started just kind of uh, going down that that pathway, you know, focusing on that more on the sensory play bins, of course, but also on information about highly sensitive children too. Yeah, and that's that's so good because the term highly sensitive person, HSP, I guess, there's it's hard to come by information on this topic. And it seems like it's a relatively new term because I am definitely highly sensitive. And that was always kind of looked down upon in my eyes, like, oh, I wish I could just stop being so sensitive. 
well, if it's an actual term, I don't know, what's your take on this as a, as a thing, you know, and not just a personality type, but really um, a condition almost that, that means we need to think about children in a different way who might be highly sensitive. Yeah. And, you know, I think, I think that as we know right now, that high, being highly sensitive, even sensory processing disorders are not recognized by, you know, the medical DCM as a diagnosis, right? As a diagnosis code, let's put it that way. And basically what that means is those kiddos then might not be having access to services that they need um, if that's their only diagnosis. And of course, highly being highly sensitive or a highly sensitive child, that's like you said, it's an inborn or innate temperament. It's not a diagnosis. So I think there are definitely some missed windows for some kids who maybe only have that sensory processing disorder or are only highly sensitive. Like my child, I really truly feel he's only a highly sensitive child. At this point, we don't have any other diagnoses. And I do think that, you know, potentially that could, he might miss miss opportunities that he might have benefited from if he had a formal diagnosis. And I think, you know, potentially, you know, as a teacher for you, I think um, where there's maybe some disconnect too with this not being an official diagnosis is that it's not made very well aware for teachers, for even pediatricians. There's some pediatricians that don't know about this. And I mean, even for me as a speech pathologist, we didn't learn about this in school. You know, I learned about this later after school. Yeah. Um, you know, we learn about autism, ADHD, anxiety and depression. We learn about all those things in school, but we don't learn about highly sensitive children. So yeah. it is kind of this, yeah, what you said, just like almost like a newer thing. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. A thing, whatever this is. Yeah. How yeah. would you define it actually? Just in your experience for yourself, for your child, mm-hmm. what would you say if a mom is like, how do I know if my, my kid is highly sensitive? Yeah. So I guess, how do you know, primarily just taking the quiz, honestly, there's a quiz on hsperson.com. Oh, wow. Um, and that is, you know, the main researcher in this field, Dr. Elaine Aaron, you know, it's copyrighted that quiz. And honestly, it, it, you go through and you read about the different temperaments or the different uh, attributes that go to this temperament. So like shyness, inhibitedness, cautiousness, fearfulness, fussiness, hyper or oversensitive. But you also read about the other side of it, the creativity, the intuition, the wisdom, the empathy. Yes. So, you know, there's kind of this maybe negative outlook, but also positive too. So, yeah, I think, you know, that's how, at least how I had determined is definitely reading the book, The Highly Sensitive Child, among others that Dr. Elaine Aaron has authored, and then definitely taking the quiz by her as well. And um, it's just one of those things where as you read and read and, you know, it's just, it all makes sense, right? Yes. Like like you said too, I'm also a highly sensitive person. So yeah, it's one of these things where I'm like, wow, like you think back to your childhood and you're like, man, there's a lot of stuff making sense now. (laughs) Yes. Yeah. I'm so glad to know that term too. And I really like how you touched upon the fact that there's so many positive 
attributes of being a highly sensitive person, because I do still feel as if it's like a, a bit negative. And I don't really know why. Why is being sensitive looked down as negative? I, I, I'm not sure, but it's definitely something that we want society says for our kids to be be strong and, and keep it together. But you can be strong and still be sensitive, of course. Mm-hmm. How did you, if you're comfortable sharing, how did you start to realize that your child might be highly sensitive like yourself? What were some of those clues that you noticed? Yeah, so kid? I... I think some of it's hindsight 2020. Some of it were like, oh, wow. Like we think back to when he was a baby and we're like, oh man, like there's things that are just really red flags. Like for instance, we would make this kissing sound, like just doing like that, you know, that kind of sound. And he would scream at, you know, the top of his lungs at that sound. He just hated it. Even clothing, like as a baby, there was clothing fussiness and Um, just even sleep. He, you know, if we had a really busy day, he had such a hard time calming after a busy day in the evening and just would be so fussy in the evening. And, you know, people, I think sometimes automatically assume it's quote unquote colic, but I also just wonder if some of these babies who get pigeonholed into that colic category are just sensitive. They, they get overwhelmed by all the stimulation that a day can bring. Yes. Oh, my twins, when they were babies got so overwhelmed. I could not take them to a single place, like visiting friends in, you know, I brought my babies to work once when I was obviously on maternity leave and just volume around them was causing screams because they were so overstimulated. And I, I think I was telling you, I remember my son, the twins were in those little jumpers that hang from the doorways. And I gave them each the crinkly top of a Brussels sprouts container. It's like the clear, whatever, but it's super crinkly. I'm like, oh, babies will love this. It crinkles. Oh my gosh. First of all, it's a loud crinkle, but my son screamed, screamed, screamed. And I remember right then I thought that's strange. You know, that that's, that's a little strange. What do you make of a highly sensitive child versus sensory processing disorder? And where is that line? You know, are we talking about the same thing here or? Yeah, I, I don't think so. So I think with sensory processing disorder, we have, we think about when is this child having difficulty getting through everyday activities? So activities of daily living, ADLs. When is this child having a hard time getting through a meal, getting through um, sleep? So really dressing too. <laughs> um, and I'm, I'm talking like not just a tantrum here and there or, you know, some meltdowns. I think we, we think about you know, is it, is it affecting their, their daily life to an extent that they're having a hard time recovering from these tantrums, meltdowns, or it's hard for mom or dad or caregiver to pull them out of it. Hopefully that makes sense. Yeah. Yeah, it does. I'm, I'm just thinking back and trying to, you start to think about those pieces and remembering those memories and going, like you said, hindsight is 2020. Like, oh yeah, I wonder. And so if, if a mom is listening to this and thinking, okay, you know, this is all starting to make sense to me now, what's, what's her next move? And, and I, I hate to put you on the spot like that. So no, that's don't, fine. Feel, that's don't feel fine. obligated, but what's the next move? What should she do? 
I think first and foremost, educate yourself, read the books, follow parenting experts that are talking about this. And I think focusing, you know, what on your parenting strategy and what's working, what's not working with highly sensitive kids. In my experience, what I've found is, you know, more of a gentle parenting, respectful parenting approach seems to work best and really helping them build that feeling vocabulary and helping them manage their emotions through the use of strategies. Um, So really, ultimately, what we want is we want these kiddos to be able to get to a place of internally managing their emotions like we do as adults, but of course, developmentally appropriate. And I think also just kind of what we touched on earlier is coming, uh, appreciating some of the like wonderful things that actually do come from this and seeing how you can help them to, to make those things, you know, their superpowers or, you know, make those things like work for them. So Yeah. yeah, just, just appreciating some of that empathy, their curiosity, frankly, how dang smart some of them are, you know? (laughs) Yes. And playing on those strengths. I completely Mm -hmm. agree. Would you say in your opinion that highly sensitive children can show a great deal of anger? Like we always think about empathy and tears and overly emotional. What about things like anger? (laughs) I'm speaking for a friend. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Um, yes and no. So I think that they're it's so hard because it's so many shades of gray, right? There's not such a defined black and white with this, but I do think that when it's getting to a point of anger, particularly like self-harm or harm to others, I do think that that's maybe a time to talk to your pediatrician, consider a um, psychology assessment or developmental pediatrician or potentially even occupational therapy as well. Um, because at that point, I, I do think that they're needing certain sensory input in their life that would be best met by someone who's, who's specializes in it, right? An occupational yeah. therapist can give a quote unquote sensory diet or sensory lifestyle to, for these kiddos to be coping better. Yeah. So Again, I, I, it's hard to just say like a yes or no for anger, because I just think that there's such a spectrum of what that might look like. Right. So there might be like moments when they get frustrated and you might see like a tantrum that you feel you could label as anger, but are they, you know, is it to a point of, of harm or danger? Right. Yeah, you are. You, you always (laughs) do. You always do. Yes. And actually you bringing up OT makes me want to ask this question because I know mm-hmm. you're an SLP. Yeah. What are your thoughts? Like, are you, why did you choose the direction you chose for a career? Since, I mean, you do sound very much like an OT. <laughs> yes. A lot of people ask me that. So honestly, so I, I chose SLP because I started as pre-med and I loved anything neurology but I hated everything biochemistry, <laughs> really more namely chemistry. I hated chemistry anyways. So, um, I was talking to my counselor at school. Um, my mom, my cousin is also an SLP. So she had a little bit of input there too. And my brother, who's 11 years younger than me saw an SLP when he was a baby. 
So I kind of saw that as well. Cause I was, you know, in the range of 12 to 15 mm-hmm. when he was seeing one. So I just had experience with SLPs and my counselor was like, you, you know, talking about what I really like, you love neurology. You can go into, you know, a medical field with SLP. Of course you can with OTT too, but that's just not what he had recommended at the time. So, um, I took some neurology for SLP specific classes and I loved them. And that's kind of where I went with it. This evolution of interest in sensory processing and, you know, highly sensitive children has really just become or come from having my own child who has these needs. And then that's kind of when I started, because I'm an SLP, I actually am allowed to take all of the continuing education for occupational therapy. They let you do the crossover. Wow. So I have just been taking CEUs on CEUs, the, the <laughs> continuing education units on uh, over and over and over on all of this sensory stuff, because I'm just intrigued by it. I basically get nothing out of it. I still have to take my SLP continuing yes. education too. I get nothing out of it professionally, but I get a lot out of it as a parent because it really helps me understand, you know, why why sensory play is helpful why sensory input is needed for kids and you know what that looks like yeah that was going to be my exact next question so that leads into it perfect why (laughs) why sensory play what is it doing for kids in the brain and especially with highly sensitive children yeah so like i said earlier i definitely don't want to discount the need for occupational therapy for some kids And I don't want to seem that, you know, my Instagram or any other helper Instagrams like this are enough for parents. I do think that there's definitely a place for occupational therapy for some of these kiddos to have a more regimented or individualized sensory plan. But I think sensory play for, you know, highly sensitive kids is it's a great way to practice flexibility and adaptation to multi-sensory input. And you're doing it in a safe environment. You're doing it at home where it's fun. You're, you know, you're presenting it in a fun way. You're presenting it in a safe way. And um, they can practice, you know, using their strategies too. When something's feeling overwhelming, they can practice those strategies and they can practice flexibility through this play. And I also think think that it's, it kind of goes, with um, practicing that ability to like be efficient and to appropriately respond to sensory stimulation. Um, and we see, can see some generalization until, you know, other things out, out in the real world. Yeah. <laughs> um, but I think, you know, sensory play in general definitely helps to build positive pathways in the brain um, with new stimuli provides the opportunity to tell us that something is, that this is safe, that it's safe to engage with these new sensations. So it's shaping those choices and impacting that future behavior because it's, and this is something I had learned and like, or heard in like a psychology class at some point is that, you know, if you think about like, when you go to the zoo, you see a tiger at the zoo and the tiger it doesn't scare you. Your physiological response doesn't change. You have learned that that's safe, that it's safe to be there in with that tiger. 
who's in a fence, right? But you see a tiger in the wild, your response is going to be much different. So you've been conditioned or trained or practiced what is safe and what isn't. So your, you know, your fight, flight, or freeze response is going to be different in those scenarios. So similarly, in a much smaller scheme way, <laughs> um, engaging with a multi-sensory input like this, like sensory play provides, can show that's, you know, being in that multi-sensory situation, it can be safe. Yeah. So they start to get that experience for mm-hmm. future experiences that may come right. up. Right. Yeah. In that case, it sounds like it would be beneficial to start sensory play with babies. Would yeah. you agree? Yeah, for sure. What yeah. would an example of sensory play for babies look like? water (laughs) yes water and i mean i always just have to put the disclaimer out there one-on-one supervision always for every single age of sensory play because babies can drown in two inches of water so but water is a great way to start and being outside easy on caregivers so it's not too messy and just just putting like scoops and funnels and even like the you know the little people people and animals they're large so they're not a choking hazard and they go great in water play yeah um so like even every time you take a bath sorry i'm not interrupting you yeah every time the kid takes a bath and they're splashing around that is technically sensory play yeah exactly that and also just i think for, for other examples for young kids Um, I'm sure people have seen like the sensory bottles or the sensory bags where you put stuff in the bag, like particularly with the bag, I'm thinking of my infant who's three months and we do tummy time, putting it in the bag and then taping the bag to the floor. So taping it all around the edges and then they just push on it, you know, just so you can put, I mean, so many different things in the bag. You could put shaving cream, you could put a small amount of water, you can put oil, you can, I mean, even just beans put in the bag to push around so such a good idea so it's it's not only different textures but I don't know it's squishy it's it's plus it's visual if it's colorful something they can see I love that I do remember we did make sensory bottles with my twins when they were very young and you know this is something that you and I were talking about when we chatted before we recorded this Older kids like sensory play too. Now, I feel like sensory play, especially the term sensory play, is thought of to be kind of um, a toddler, preschool, baby sort of thing. But what are the benefits for an older child to engage in sensory play? Yeah, I think similar. I mean, there's a lot of the same crossover, you know, what I was talking about before. But honestly, I think like, it's kind of just can give them that break from technology too. You know, I think we're getting to this point where we just assume that an eight-year-old can just sit on a tablet and they probably could do that all day. (laughs) But (laughs) I think um, just giving them that break that, that it can be calming too. I mean, I think I had 
mentioned to you before, but you know, back in the back in the day in the '90s when we had those mm-hmm. those sand with the little rake and the Zen gardens, yes. I think they were called. Yes. I'm sure they still exist, but I just haven't seen them recent. But I feel like it's similar, right? Those were targeted for adults. They weren't for kids. They were for adults to take a few minutes from break from work, or and I think you know, teenagers, older, you know kiddos they can all benefit from that too from that little bit of break and i think it's funny too because if you give a teenager a container of play-doh they're not they're not going to not take it out and play yes. with it and do something with it they're going to they're not just going to leave it on the table and ignore it they're going to yes. jump in too that's so true that is so true i probably would do the same thing if you hand yes. me i mean especially with my own kids but if they're playing with kinetic sand I have, yes. I have to touch that. Like that is, yes. very, I don't know. It's, it, I just have to do it or a bin of rice or whatever. It just feels so good. Yeah. I think kinetic sand always gets me. It's, isn't that <laughs> the best stuff? Amazing. Stuff? It is. I love that stuff. It is. And honestly, you, like you said, it, it, outside in nature, playing in dirt, playing in a you know, sandbox, even mm-hmm. plunking a baby in grass and feeling the, the textures. And so I'm trying to think about how I've been able to use sensory bins for my highly sensitive child over the years, not knowing that there was a connection and I never really saw it that way. So that's amazing insight that you're able to bring, but we did sensory bins all the time because it calmed him. It also gave him something to focus on. And all of my kids, you know, they were, became like hyper-focused on pouring or scooping and it was almost mindless for everything else going on around them. And it was very something about getting their hands in it or even their toes and like really feeling it somehow just changed their behavior. It's hard to have a meltdown while you have your feet and hands in rice or, you know, yeah. whatever. it's really hard to feel that, that fight or flight mode. At least that's what I noticed when we yeah. did sensory bins. Do you feel like you've noticed the same thing with, with your kiddo? Yeah, hundred percent. And honestly, I feel like bringing them to that, that like calmness or that calm state, it really kind of opens the door for you to be able to have moments in the day to talk to them. Because I think, you know, in these, in, in reading parenting books and taking parenting courses, you know, whatever you do, I think we learn about how we need to talk to our kids about situations outside of the situation, right? We we learn that it's imp- that we can't talk to a child when they're in tantrum mode because they're in right brain mode and not left brain mode, and we have to wait until they get to the left brain. And anyways, I think it's it's a it just provides a really calm moment for you to talk to to your child about moments that weren't calm. And I think it's a really good segue into building that feelings vocabulary because, and what I mean by that is again, age appropriately, you might start with a little kid just at mad, sad, and happy, right? You might start at like these, the most basic vocabulary terms for feelings, but, you know, just talking about how they felt in a scenario and, and the responses during that scenario too. So I think it it just, it, you know, there's, there's a lot of benefits to sensory play itself, but I also think that that moment in time when they're playing 
kind of provides that window of opportunity for connection between the caregiver and the child also. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I wonder if that's, you know, I, I've heard about play therapy and that sort of thing. I'm mm-hmm. imagining it's something similar. Yep, and exactly. you can also focus, you know, questions, especially for little ones. And it's like, well, tell me about it. what does it feel like? What do you mm-hmm. hear? Um, you know, if it has a smell, if you can add some smell, I used to do that with rice and add a little bit of, I don't know what I added to it. oils maybe. It must have been oil. Yeah. 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 And give it a little scent and, and that's just so fun. And actually just recently, maybe a month or so ago with my almost eight-year-olds and almost five-year-olds, I said one day, all right, it was like a rainy Sunday afternoon. We're doing a sensory bin. And I had them go into the other room and cover their eyes while I set all the things up. It doesn't even have to be anything crazy. Mm -hmm. It it really doesn't. I think I did. I've done a couple recently, but just, just water, little food coloring, maybe a little bit of bubbles. um, And then a few toys or something like a rice or sand bin. I put some plastic animals in, can do Easter eggs. You can hide letters inside. You can make it educational or not. And so actually my next question for you is, So let's say a mom says, okay, this all makes sense. Sensory play, I can see the benefits of it. It sounds really nice and relaxing. Where do I start? What should I, it seems overwhelming. And they always say the mess, the mess, the mess. You know, where, what would you recommend as kind of a starter point for just maybe doing a bin or some sort of sensory play with their kid? Yeah, so I think starting small like just try not to overwhelm yourself. So I think even just going to the dollar store, getting a shoe box. So, you know, small, it's just the size of a shoe box and getting some beans, cut open the bag of beans and pour it into the box. Like just start super simple. And honestly, kids love things from the kitchen, like kitchen tongs, the spatulas, Um, The ladles are great for scooping or even scooping with um, measuring cups, (laughs) scooping with the measuring cups. And just, I mean, you can get a lot of this stuff from your kitchen or even uh, the tube from the paper towel or the tube from the toilet paper. It's fun to scoop that stuff into it, right? So I think just keeping, trying to keep it as simple as possible to not overwhelm yourself because I also hear the first is always the fear of the mess. And the second is I'm going to put in the time and then my child is going to look at it for 20 seconds. (laughs) And that's possible. There's definitely bins that I've put out and my kids are way less interested than other bins. So I think but I don't give up on that bin either. I bring it out again later with different things in it. Like one time it might have trucks. The next time it might have dinosaurs. The time after that, I might use those little people, people, you know, so, or mixing in the toilet paper tubes, you know, things like that. So just changing it up with what you add to it too. You can, you know, keep kind of rotating that same, same dry material. Yeah. And maybe avoid Pinterest because yeah. Pinterest sensory bins are like a work of art. Yes. <laughs> and they have so many fancy things inside. And I have found the most success with my kids with very simple bins. Yeah. Um, so yeah. I want to add in really quick. One of, yeah. I think the most successful things for my kids is using masking tape and taping over the top of the bin and making like, if you will, a spider web over the top of the bin 
So that way they have to like rescue or save whatever is in the bin. Oh my gosh. Like, and they can idea. use like tongs or just their hands. I love that. I <laughs> it's love so that. simple, but they love it. I love that. All the times we've done bins, I have never done that. That's <laughs> such a good idea. I have to, I mean, speaking of the mess, I think, and I've read this before, it's like establishing ground rules with, with a sensory bin. I put down a fitted sheet underneath our bin. And so you can just kind of, and there's still something to vacuum for sure, but we're not dumping it all over the the floor, you know, and then it's done. It's little messes will happen, but I think if you set down some rules, you know, and it, it should be okay. I do notice that the dollar store is such a good suggestion. I used to get like, um, for Valentine's day or for St. Patrick's day, get like little foam hearts or shamrocks can dye the water green or the rice or the pasta, throw in some gold coins and call it a sensory bin. But mostly it's everything you already have in your house. We do use all the kitchen supplies. A strainer is fun, especially Mm -hmm. for water. You just can't really go wrong. Give them a washcloth and some bubbles. And you know what we did? Our last one was they painted their plastic animals and then they had to wash them in the bin and it was a, a washing station soap and water and a brush it's really fun to do that with pudding too. make chocolate pudding oh. and then the you know the animals got all dirty in the mud and then you have a separate bin and again these can just be shoebox size like they don't have to be huge it can be oh. one shoebox size pudding bin and one shoebox size soap and water and they're in the mud and they got all dirty and we have to wash them so and maybe like an old like toothbrush too just mixing in like the tools that they use can be huge yes absolutely and I really think what this all boils down to I mean sensory play in general is a wonderful thing in sensory bins but when we're talking about a highly sensitive child somebody who feels really big emotions this might be the perfect opportunity to either calm them or talk to them, help them process or not. And maybe it's just a distraction tool. But I think that that is the key, at least for me, it wasn't just about the the fun activity. It was about self-regulation. Yeah, for sure. And I think that you really touch upon that. And so do you still use sensory reinforcement, I guess, or positive reinforcement with your SLP clients? I do. So right now I'm actually doing teletherapy because of COVID, Yeah. but my clients don't live too far from me. So I actually go and drop things off and I use for them. I use the little pencil containers from the dollar store. So it's even on a smaller scale and I use um, target dollar spot always has um, awesome Awesome erasers, the mini erasers. So I put the mini erasers in whatever sensory material I'm doing, like beans or popcorn kernels or, you know, a wide variety. And again, I'm telling you, I use these with kids, little kids, as long as I know parents will be there one-on-one the whole time, but also my older kids love it. (laughs) They love it. Is it like, um, so if you're putting the erasers in, are they trying to find them like a find it? Sort yeah. Of so usually what I do, like, let me just give you one example. Let's say I'm working. I have a kiddo that's eight who works on articulation. And so we're working on sounds and words. And what I'll do is I'll actually print off some like worksheets for him. I have the worksheet there and all he has to do is find one eraser from the bin and put it on the sound that we've already done. Right. So like, it might be a worksheet with 
um, all the pictures with his target sound in it. And then once we've done each one, he'll take, he'll go into the bin, take out the mini eraser, put it on the picture that we just completed, the target that we met. Um, so it's just, you know, kind of a, a way to keep their hands busy during the session and, and we get a little more fun. Yeah, I love that. I feel like as a teacher, an elementary school teacher, my students would eat that up. They absolutely yeah. would love that sort of play. And it is just so addicting um, just to get your hands in those materials. And so I, I, I kind of like that too. I need sensory bins for moms. Is that a thing? Yeah. <laughs> is there a Pinterest, yeah, Pinterest board for sensory play for moms? So Kelsey, you're an amazing resource and a wealth of knowledge how can people find you if they want to ask more questions and take a deeper dive into this topic and tell us about what you do on the side? Yes. Well, thank you so much. You can find me on Instagram at as the littles grow with underscores in between each word, or you can email me to Kelsey, K-E-L-S-E-Y at as the littles grow.com. And yeah, but even just shooting me a DM on Instagram. I'm always on there. Yeah. (laughs) And And I'm happy to answer any, yes, Clubhouse, any questions, even if it's, you know, sensory, where to get started, the simplest things. (laughs) Absolutely. No, that's super, super helpful. And I just want to thank you. Thank you so much for coming and joining us today. And my, my audience will be thrilled to hear more about sensory play and give you a follow and Yeah. So thank you so much and have a wonderful night. (laughs) Thank you. Thank you so much for having me. Thanks for listening today. If you would like to talk with me personally, where we can chat and just get to know each other like old friends, I would love to do a discovery call with you. Go to my website on theharddays.com and click on schedule a call. And if you're not already subscribed to this podcast, please do so so that you get the latest when they roll out. Not to mention, please leave a review if you feel like this episode spoke to you. That way, the podcast will be shown to more mothers. And finally, you can find me on Instagram at ontheharddays with dots in between each word or in my free Facebook community, On The Hard Days Podcast and Community. If you are feeling isolated in your parenting journey, I encourage you to reach out through any of these means so that I can connect you with your people and support you in whatever way you need.